Because I can control the weather, they call me Storm. Welcome to This Week in Nerd News, your one-stop shop for all of the pop culture you may have missed this week. Brought to you by the Black Nerd Problems Broadcast Network. I am your host, Mikkel Snyder. And I am your host, Keith Wrigley. We're going to start off this week's episode with a bit of narrative appropriateness, callbacks, and just the great cosmic timing of the universe. And I say this because every time Keith and I are co-host, we somehow manage to find ourselves talking about a consistent slate of topics, because that's just how the news cycle somehow manages to work. But today marks the last time we're ever going to talk about Quibi, and thank goodness for that, because Keith has cursed us with talking about Quibi way too many times. So, for a recap, for the last time, and then never again, Quibi short for Quick Bytes, was the woefully short-lived short-form streaming service founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg, a former Walt Disney exec and DreamWorks co-founder, and Meg Whitman, a former eBed Inc. and HP Enterprise Co. chief executive. They had this idea, although make short-form video content that you could watch on your phone. And billions of dollars went into developing a wide range of series for this platform that almost no one used. And the one that I am personally offended by to this day is still Anna Kendrick's Dummy, where she played opposite a CGI sex doll. But Quibi is now dead, and I personally blame Keith that we have devoted so much time to this platform that does not deserve any of this time. But we don't need to worry about it anymore because they couldn't find a buyer and they don't have an audience, and they don't even own their content, apparently. So, Keith, I would ask you your thoughts, but I don't want to hear them, because we're not talking <laughs> about Quibi anymore. One thing I will say, this is not my fault, sir. Our job to talk about was newsworthy, and a very bad idea getting $1.75 billion is indeed noteworthy. So that's all I'm saying there. And if you RIP, I guess, goodbye. I will no longer say that word again in my life. We could have just not talked about Quibi, man. That was that was completely an option. Anyways, in news I actually want to talk about for the for this episode, Disney released their trailer for Raya and the Last Dragon. So, Pixar's 50th nine production Raya and the Last Dragon is a story heavily inspired, but not directly connected to Southeast Asian cultures, and stars Kelly Marie Tran as the titular Raya and Aquafina as Sisu, the titular Last Dragon. The two-minute trailer featured an incredible score with absolutely incredible music, and the crescendos had me so, so very excited. And that was even before Raya brought out the Eskrima sticks from some Kali, also known as Ornis, all of which are sort of interchangeable terms for the traditional Filipino martial arts, and you know that I'm just so very excited by seeing that on the screen. The trailer featured some gorgeous set pieces, characters that were clearly inspired, but again, clearly not, different Southeast Asian demographics, and the whole trailer had like this wide scope of a story as we saw a young Raya, and then a clearly older Raya at the very end of the trailer. Uh, This movie is directed by Don Hall and Carlos Lopez Estrada, and is written by Kui Nugan and Adele Lim. 
and it's slated for a March 2021 release, although I don't trust anything about the movie theater industry right now. So, uh, please start streaming everything, cause, yeah. But the trailer looks incredible, it looks dope, and I was, I was just ecstatic when I woke up and saw the trailer on my, on my feeds. But then afterwards, uh, as with many fans, this trailer was tempered by a wide range of concerns, which were, like, minor to major in, in various capacities, so, like, minor complaint, right? Uh, there was, like, some slight similarities with Avatar The Last Airbender in terms of, like, the costume design and whatnot, which, again, I think is minor because, of course, that's what's gonna happen when you have a decidedly Western interpretation of a Southeast Asian culture. Like, that's just drawn from the same source material. Like, that, that makes sense. Personal note. Uh, when Ryan the Last Dragon was first announced, uh, Ryan was originally going to be voiced by a Filipino-Canadian actress by the name of Cassie Steele. Kelly Marie Tran's recasting of the role came as, like, a bit of a shock, and there was no real explanation why this recasting happened, other than sort of, like, we liked Tran, and, like, that's great, I adored Tran, and, like, that was cool. I just also really like the idea of a Filipino voicing Disney royalty. I'm like, that's me. That's me. And then finally, and this is a point that I've alluded to constantly throughout this segment, Raya and the Last Dragon is ultimately a fantasy movie, and as such does not necessarily reflect the actualities of the different culture, but is rather a sort of distorted reflection and pastiche of various things. And this gives Disney the right to claim representation, but then also gives them ample room to deflect any critique of said representation. And this movie is inspired by Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Laos, which are all geographically close in proximity, but are still seven distinct cultures that are all sort of being vaguely represented in this one movie. And that... That's still weird, right? Like, it's kind of like the equivalent sort of like, what if we just take all of Europe and just say we're blending all of, like, France, Germany, Britain, like, there would be, there would be people up in arms about that, right? So, like, that's weird. And as excited as I got as an Asian American watching this trailer, as a Filipino American seeing a scream of sticks in a Pixar movie, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out these critiques and voice my concerns. But that said, the music so good and there are dragons and like what more what more do i want i want better representation of everything but like right now like that that was enough that was enough very well said sir so i actually went ahead and watched this trailer for the first time this morning we've talked about this in the past on this show i believe and also just in our own conversations and it was always something we were looking forward to and seeing this trailer from like a film perspective it matches the hype. It looks beautiful. Like I said, the music is amazing. I already love Raya after just seeing her for two minutes. I'm like looking forward to being one of my favorite characters in all Disney products. So that's exciting. And everything there looked fantastic. And I can't wait to find out more about this story, especially the whole age jump factor. I'm trying to figure out like how that comes to play in the story and everything too. Like I'm all right here for a time jump. It's against anime coming over to the real world. I don't know. But also like you definitely did raise a very good point. Like some things that can be said and, Again, overall, super excited for this film, and I'm going to be super, like, very behind it and everything. But we will be remiss to not at least point out the fact that this does appear to suffer from the same difficulties that happen when 
when U.S. based studios try to take stories from different cultures and like make it their own, like one of the main issues that you'll see there is that they'll kind of mash up different pieces from different cultures that they don't quite understand, don't belong together. Like prime example, that would be with Black Panther. Yes, it was an official universe, of course, but they pulled from like six or seven different African countries and civilizations and put them in Wakanda. And sure, like the retcon story behind that is that all of that civilization came from Wakanda and just went off to become its own thing. But like when you watch the movie, I'm like, there's no reason that they should all have like accents from different regions of the continent. That just doesn't really make much sense. But I think this appears to be kind of another example of that. But again, with that said, there's always more that you could do. But I think as far as that scale goes, they still did a lot here based on what we've seen in the news reports and in this two minute trailer, of course. But I'm still more than cautiously optimistic. I'm actually optimistic about this coming out. Yeah, no, I I agree. And, like, to the show's credit, like, there is Asian-American talent behind and in front of the camera, which is a weird thing to say because it's an animated (laughs) feature. But, like, there there is front-facing talent and the people behind are also, like, representing these groups. So, like, some of these concerns are, like, assuaged by that, right? But, like, it's it's still a concern. And it's still very much a thing which is sort of, like... Claiming something because because it, it's the correct thing from, like, a marketing perspective, right? What well, sort of, like, Disney saying that, like, this is representative of, like, all of these different places is a marketing ploy. Because capitalism is awful, as we always talk about during this show. Um, and, like, it's a means to get people in. And that is great in terms of, sort of, like, at least they are trying in some respect to, like, engage with people. But it's also just sort of, like... But why can't we just get that representation as well? And, like, it needs to be good. And, like, if we critique this, you're going to have to actually take the critique seriously and can't just hand wave it off, I seems like, oh, it's fictional. It's sort of like, yeah, it is fictional, but, like, this is very clearly rooted in these things that you said you were doing. So, like, you need to be able to take the note. But, again, I just watched that trailer and I'm just sort of like, this is everything I want. It was just so good. Like, when Raya takes out the extremist sticks and does the rotating lock, that's sort of like, that was my jam. And, like, all of the fight sequences, however brief that they were, was great. Tuk Tuk is a fantastic animal companion, and I look forward to meeting them and getting the plush toy eventually. Like, it all looks good. And, like, I hope that society is in a good enough place that where I feel comfortable going to a movie theater so I can see this on a big screen. Oh, barring that, please just release this on Disney Plus and I will watch it. Uh, I will pay the money that you wanted me to pay for Mulan but did not get for me. I will pay for this because this, this looks much more up my alley. Definitely. Like, I was just thinking, too, like, March 2021, we know that's not really likely for a wide release. Disney Plus, just go ahead and just do that now, and we're going to go ahead and pay for it. But with that said, we're going to take a quick break and come back for our next segment. So there's nothing that feels quite as good as an underdog story. And Hollywood and the movie industry overall is desperately in need for one right now. And in this case, I'm talking about Love and Monsters. Now, if you're unaware, Love and Monsters is a film that stars Dylan O'Brien, who you may recognize from Teen Wolf, The Maze Runner Trilogy, American Assassin, or even a short cameo in New Girl, as a young man who leads the safety of a bunker he's lived in for the past seven years, as overgrown monsters have taken over the surface. All for the sake of reconnecting with his high school sweetheart, who we last saw, again, seven years ago. 
The Michael Matthews director film was scheduled to come out in theaters this past April, but that was pushed back to October 16th for very obvious reasons. While the film hasn't made much of anything in the box office, it's already well on its way to becoming a bit of a cult classic for fans of sci-fi and comedy films. It also features appearances from Michael Rooker and Jessica Henwick, who you may recognize from her roles as Nymeria Sand in Game of Thrones and Colleen Wing in Iron Fist and the Defenders and I think Luke Cage as well. After Paramount made the call to make Love and Monsters available for PVOD, it found a home at the top of the charts in support for its in support for it is only growing at this point. As as of this recording, it currently has a 93% score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 7 out of 10 on IMDb. My feelings about the film aside, which to be clear are definitely skewed more positive and have a few general critiques, this could serve as an opportunity for lower cost films to find success and offer people the entertainment and distractions that we really need in this time where we can't quite go out to movie theaters and see a new movie every week as we used to. Given that it might not quite make as much money, but given that it cost, had a lower budget than these huge blockbuster films, it could still make more of it back and it could still be less of a loss for studios and then ultimately serve the same purpose. Mikhail, I know you and I talked about how much this movie caught your eye as well as mine. I'm the one who went ahead and made the sacrifice and just like paid $20 to rent it and I'm not mad about that at all. But what caught your eye about this film? We've discussed this at least once before on this show and if we haven't, we're going to discuss it now. But like, Dylan O'Brien is like a very good actor. Yes. Like, like... Like, aggressively, like, so, in such a way that it's sort of, like, offensive? Like, how good of an actor <laughs> he is? It's just sort of like, what are you doing here making this so enjoyable? Like, how? And I say this, I say this predominantly having met him as Styles in Teen Wolf. And, like, Teen Wolf is just the campiest MTV-ridden supernatural drama that you could ever expect. And Dylan O'Brien acted the hell out of his character in that series to the point where I I watched the show in large part because he was just driving lots of great things as a supporting character. He wasn't even the lead. He was just like a very important secondary character. But like uh, Tyler Posey was was the main actor in that series. But like. Dylan O'Brien stole the show to the point where, like, they centered the first season around Dylan O'Brien's character. And then when Dylan O'Brien became so popular that he had to, like, do other things during the film, they centered a season about, like, Styles is missing, right? <laughs> like, like th- that, that's how much the show revolved around the secondary character and how much, like, Dylan O'Brien's impact was, like, felt both, like, internally and externally. And, like, He's just fun to watch. He has good comedic timing. He has good dramatic drops. He has a surprising range. And, like, it's really weird. But, like, I I adore what he has done. Yeah, I 100% completely agree with you. And I think we may have talked about it on the show in the past as well. But if not, we've talked about it personally many, many times. I echo those same exact sentiments of Dylan O'Brien. Like, I probably like him more than I should as an actor, to be honest. Like, same story here. I started watching Teen Wolf when it first came on that summer, I think in 2011, and he jumped out instantly as my favorite character on the show, to the point that, like you said, they even made an entire season about him being gone, and there was one season where he got to have the benefit of playing sort of his normal 
dorky best friend self-styled Stalinsky, but also like an evil character in a sense. And like that was when I was like, oh, he's good. And because of this like appreciation of Dylan O'Brien, I watched the entire Mage Runner trilogy. I watched American Assassin and like I jumped with joy when I saw his short cameo on New Girl. But I will say on the first two of those, the reason they worked, they were all right. But I think one issue they suffer from is that they didn't use his full skill set. They tried to make him more serious than he is when he is wonderful being charming and dorky and kind of a fish out of water in a lot of senses. Lifestyle Stalinsky was as the human who has friends that are like werewolves and banshees and all these other crazy things and Teen Wolf, right? And in Love and Monsters, that's largely the case as well. Like He plays this character who's never really left the bunker at all in seven years because he feels kind of helpless and everyone around him views him the same way. Well, now he's going to chase love and walk 85 miles on the surface for a week and come across who knows what with a dog named Boy. I left that part out. I love the fact that the dog is named Boy. And like going through all this stuff. And he's super charming. And he makes the, he's, he's actually, in a lot of reviews that I've read in my own viewing as well, he is the best part of this movie. It's... Other parts of it are somewhat predictable, like it's not quite as funny as Zombieland, and it's also not quite as adventurous as other movies that are in the same ranks, but watching Dylan O'Brien just do all these things is like, I could watch this for two more hours and not be mad at it at all, which is why I'm not mad at renting a movie for 20 bucks this first week. So my, my mentality with this rental was, if I can help Dylan O'Brien become the face of the one movie that made it and it was a success during lockdown COVID-19, I will do so. So this $20 is definitely worth it. So this movie that I definitely enjoyed, I'm glad to see this being appreciated in this level by so many people, and it's at the number one on the iTunes charts and other places as well, for good reason. So if you're interested, like if you're anything like me and have interest in a movie about a, literally a boy and his dog named Boy traveling across the dangerous surface level of the world, fighting monsters and everything with Michael Rooker and a samurai sword. Check it out. You might want to wait a couple of weeks, but I say if you get that chance to go ahead and do so. We can't just talk about Dylan O'Brien the entire time of the segment because, like, this the segment also brings up a very couple other interesting points, right? Well, one, Prime Video has such an immense collection of things that are really good, and no one ever hears about them via Prime Video. You always hear it from, like, a secondary source telling you, sort of, like, this is now available on Prime Video. And, like, it has no discoverability, and that is just shame, because that library is deep, and it is very good. And then, two, please just make more movies available to stream online. Just please... Just please, we're at that point. And then Freight, back to your point about, like, uh, budget movies getting recouped and having, like, these smaller lifespans, right? I think I think that works in, like, the abstract sense of, like, profit margins, right? Which is sort of, like, we have the lower-budget films recouping their costs via these, like, cult classic indoctrination-type things, right? But, like, the range of, like, low-level... Uh, small budget films and large budget films is like magnitudes different and i think there's often sort of like we forget about like the mid-budget films that are gonna like vanish during these times in a lot of ways and so if like there's not gonna be a lot of room for a movie that like takes more than like an indie budget but doesn't need the full blockbuster budget um to like turn around and like make a profit in the ways that the companies want them to so I'm. It's going to be so fascinating seeing the fallout of this stupidly long year in a lot of different ways. And again, we've been talking about this for seven months. 
longer than the length of Quibi's entire lifespan. We've been talking about this. You said it. That's not my fault. Yeah, I know. No, I know. But it is your fault because you're the one who started it. <laughs> and with that, let's enjoy our last minute for the episode. While my typical stance on reboots and revivals has always been no one asked for this, send it back, that's not always the case. Sometimes we get great things we didn't actually ask for and it ends up being to our greater benefit. This time, it looks like that's going to be the case for the Animaniacs reboot, which is set to hit Hulu on November 20th. The trailer for the series, which, for those who don't recall, focuses on three animated siblings who lived in the Warner Brothers water tower and originally ran from 1993 to 1998 but was recently revived to cater to that nostalgia habit that we all just can't seem to kick. In the newly released trailer, Yakko, Wacko, and Dot can be seen being up to their old shenanigans like repeatedly breaking the fourth wall, creating chaos alongside recognizable celebrities and politicians, and much, much more. They even take on current issues like dating apps, Donald Trump, Instagram, and iPads. Oh, and let me not forget, Pinky and the Brain are also back. I, for one, have very fond memories of watching this show, and in hindsight, there was definitely a lot of adult humor involved that originally went far over my young childhood head. And, but I'm looking forward to now getting a chance to dive into 13 new episodes and understand both the child humor but also the adult humor that I normally will miss otherwise. Mikhail, am I alone in like having this deep appreciation for Animaniacs? No, of course okay, not. Cool. Animaniacs is how we learned how to list all of the countries in a song that went on for several minutes and yes. is no longer relevant in the modern era because some of those countries don't exist anymore. <laughs> Animaniacs is is fantastic. And I think the thing about reboots, right, is that, like, the reboots need a justification for why they are getting rebooted in a lot of different ways. For so sort of, like, we can't just, like, recreate a series and hope that the magic happens again just willy-nilly, right? Like, there, there has to be an impetus, I feel like, in order for it to be, like, good. And, like, right now, I keep thinking about the fact that, like, uh, Digimon Adventures colon is just literally a straight-up reboot of the original Digimon Adventure, no colon, series back from the 90s. But the reboot made contextual sense in that, like, the basic premise of, like, a digital world has changed significantly from what the 90s was to what the current iteration of, like, the 2020s understanding of, like, the internet is and sort of, like... We did not have the same relationship with technology back then. And, like, that that's just how that is. And then with Animaniacs, this one is one of those, like, ones that sort of, like, this makes sense contextually in the fact that, like, that generation grew up with these characters and now we are sort of, like, we want that. And, like, I get that in a lot of different ways, which is, like... You see the Animaniacs and sort of like all of the connections are firing, all the nostalgia notes are hit, but then it's being updated in a way that sort of like we can appreciate the fact that like, as you said, like, well now the adults who are getting the adult jokes and also getting the kids jokes. And I remember when they released the Jurassic Park uh, teaser ahead of the trailer, which is like, this is a perfect shot to shot recreation of Jurassic Park that contextually makes sense with how they are rebooting the series. And then this trailer drops with just jokes on jokes on jokes. And it's great. And I'm really excited about it. And then I just look around and sort of like, I'm not sure you saw this on the news, but uh, Nickelodeon's also rebooting the Rugrats. Um, yeah, and they're CGI animated. And it's just like, why? Um, and like, that's nostalgia talking right now. So it's like, why do we need a Rugrats CGI animated reboot? And so it's like, I don't know. 
But then I see animating, so it's like, this makes perfect sense. And it there's no rhyme or reason to it, I feel like. But maybe there is. So so as we as we gonna wrap up the segment with just this this note of sort of like nostalgia is a weird thing and sometimes we really resonate with it and sometimes it terrifies us and sometimes our memories override common sense and whatnot. But the Animaniacs trailer objectively looks very funny. <clears throat> that it does. I mean they even have a Cyclops Donald Trump at one point and I just can't wait to see what they end up doing with that. Like there's so much like they have like twenty years of content they can dive back into and they're gonna probably do a splendid job of it. Wait, wait. So because of that, like they they did like they we have a tablet for that or a pill for that. <laughs> and sort of like they do that and then they do like a quick Q recap that ends in sort of like Queen B, we've missed so much. Um this there's so much. There's so much the writing on animated I mean, I honestly kinda of blame Animaniacs for like our generation's entire sense of humor. Like that and like being braised on the internet where like sarcasm is currency. I think those kinda of go hand in hand. <laughs> With that, we're gonna go ahead and dive into our actual last segment of every show. Like we say every week, we don't have quite enough time to get into all of the biggest news of the week. So we like to end things off with a lightning round where we go through a handful of headlines that you should at least know about, but we couldn't devote an entire segment to. So starting off. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, commonly known as AOC, announced on Twitter Monday night that she was going to play Among Us, a Black Nerd Problems family favorite, live on Twitch to get the vote out. And play Among Us she did on Tuesday after getting her account ready, which reached 545,000 followers already. Per CNN, her debut video, which lasted more than three hours, has garnered over 4.5 million views and had 435,000 concurrent viewers at its height as she played with big-name streamers and fellow representative Ilan Omar and they discussed politics and which among them was the suspect. I'm going to go back and watch this myself. It sounds like a lot of fun. Moving on. Hasbro is re-rebooting Power Rangers with a film and a television series coming as part of an expanded universe after the film didn't leave very any fruit at all, for whatever reason. In more nostalgia news, Daniel Kaluuya plans to bring us a quote-unquote dark live-action Barney film, which sounds equally far as terrifying and intriguing. And lastly, though we need some comics news, Marvel Comics Unlimited, the publisher's digital app, has now cut the time readers need to wait to read new issues in half to only three months after print publication, which is further incentive for people to read more digital comics, but remember, always support your in-person comic book stores whenever you can. If you'd like to hear our thoughts on these topics or anything else in nerd news, feel free to tweet us at Black Nerd Problems with the hashtag TWINN. That was This Week in Nerd News. Tune in next week for more pop culture news. Once again, I'm your host, Keith Ree Cleveland. I'm your host, Mikkel Snyder. Feel free to like, comment, subscribe, everywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, folks, have a great week out there. And remember to vote soon. Yes, please go vote. We need it. <laughs>